the, the awakening process, <coughs> the very term awakening, um, gives us a good the term awakening gives us a good f- feeling, a good suggestion of uh, what our practice is around. So this is like clearing away, mm-hmm. waking up. It's not about adding anything or um, getting into a new state as much as the whole process is one of clearing away obscurations, fogginess, uh, wrong views, um, blind spots, um, healing damage, so that we awaken to something that's innate, intrinsic, something that we have lost contact with, the Buddha said, through not really seeing and understanding these Four Noble Truths, you and I have trudged endlessly around this wheel, <coughs> suffering as we do so, through not seeing and clearly understanding, through getting a glimpse of and deeply dwelling in the meaning of these Four Noble Truths, truth of in simple terms, the truth of uh, suffering and stress, its origin, its cessation, and the path. Something that we that is here for all of us. So, he's not saying get into some particular state, but see this, realize this, see this, realize this, not get into some somewhere else, some other state, but realize this about the nature of where we are already. And all of the um, practices are there to help us clear away blocks, sidesteps, stop sidetracking, to heal particular damages, where we've got breaks in our awareness. And all that we acquire, and I put that, use that term tentatively, is there just as remedial means, as medicine is, um, just to help sustain, to nourish, to feed, to purify. The medicine is not the answer. The medicine of calm, the medicine of... Um, discernment, medicine of meditation is, is a medicine, it's not um, something we, you know, you take a whole bottle of aspirin to make yourself feel better. You take what you need and the idea is to assimilate and use that to clear away obscurations. So otherwise, you know, we tend to want to lock into or have as much um, you know, go on forever in that, or um, you know, some particular heightened state of perception, and be in that. And that's that's kind of, that's normal, natural. But you know, this is a habit that we have to grow out of because it's always um, source of doesn't break the wheel of suffering. It kind of transposes it, so that we find our sense of stress. And suffering can occur over our lack of calm or an inability to sustain it or when we leave the retreat or had that wonderful feeling or that wonderful sharp edge and now it's kind of got a bit, you know, um, dis- dissipated. So in treasuring one set of states, one automatically debases another set of states. <laughs> and so there isn't an end to that. Um, to that carry on, that, that wheel turning, gain and loss. <coughs> what I'd like to um, sketch in is um, what I refer to as, as ground. Uh, um, 
day I talk about a relative ground. Um, this is a cluster of um, essential factors or essential qualities um, that to, to, you know that we can pick up particular qualities, but the whole th- they they bond, they constellate to form a whole kind of ground uh, that um, acts as a, as a repository and something that can handle or get around all of the states that we experience. And there are certain amounts of um, calm, steadiness, composure, clarity, skillful means in that ground. It's a relative a ground of relative emptiness. It means it's empty of um, coarse obscurations, such as um, you know, malice, um, ill will, uh, the folk or the five hindrances. These things, it's, it's empty of those. Um, it's empty of the, the agitated, chattering mind. It's clear of that. It's, if you like, a very refined state of subjectivity. One feels very present, spacious, bright, warm. One feels ample. It's a, it's a kind of refined uh, ground of being. This may be what is meant by the Sambhogakaya in the um, Yogacharin teachings, the sense of there's enjoyment, um, and one has got many resources. <coughs> now just to leave that there for the moment, recognizing that our, our suffering and stress comes in terms of conditioned phenomena, and there are roughly speaking three three levels of this. One is the obvious external level. You know, we suffer because somebody sc- somebody screams at us, or um, we suffer because we're physical pain. We suffer because of contact with external phenomena. It's disagreeable, unpleasant, um, or we act in unskillful ways externally. You know, is we steal or cheat or lie abuse, and so forth. So this is a, you know, this kind of both ways suffering and stress is generated. And this is be- what we call behavioral, external. Um, that's one level of conditioned phenomena. Another level is more, more internal. And these are the moods, this, this kind of internal experience that we have, the moods, the energies um, that we call our mind or our or our subtle body, or our heart, and their, their inconstancy, um, they're, they're welling up, they're sometimes overwhelming, um, they sometimes seem very flat or dreary. This is kind of internal stuff going on. It's another level of phenomena. Um, so we, we can be conscious of that. third level is more subliminal. It's to do with the, the... And we don't maybe fully recognize that until we've begun to come to terms with the other two, and the subliminal level is this sense of self, something hold. I feel held, and I'm always holding something, always being me. Um, there's a kind of something that, what, that has to keep imposing itself, you know, sticking itself out onto things, finding itself in a place, establishing myself somewhere, um, occasionally just wanting to disappear altogether. Uh, like an urge for either existence or oblivion. You know, sometimes we just like to fade out altogether and just not be. Uh, and sometimes one would very much like to be more here, you know, and, and, and so forth. This subliminal level of becoming, um, this kind of restless sense of who am I? You know, how am I? How do I fit here? And this is more, um, so it's subliminal level, to do with the sense of self and I am, and that riddle. <coughs> so these are three levels. And the first level um, we often deal with in behavioral terms, as we stop stealing, killing, lying, abusing. And uh, when, that come, when people do that to us, 
then we do things like we, uh, we, we forgive or we're kind or whatever. We, we somehow deal with that in, in a behavioral sense. We don't react to it. Somebody's unpleasant to me, I, I don't have to be unpleasant back. So you have behavioral ways of checking that um, cascade of suffering that can otherwise become enormously um, um, like, a, like a, a vicious circle if we don't break it, as you see in global political terms. You know, like in, you're having the Israel-Palestine thing, you've got this continual tit-for-tat experience of violence, breeding counter-violence, until it's difficult to tell you know, who, which came first, which is a thing like that. Um, so that's, that's, if you like, on the global political level. And of course, we can be doing that between individuals. Um, and with that, you know, the, the real, one of the real problems is a sense, what breeds all this violence is a sense of justice. <coughs> you know, which is a very heady idea. You did this, so you deserve it. You did this to my people. It's just that you get this back in return. You know? And, and that this, this sense of, of uh, justice, which is a kind of self-righteousness quality. Um, so being able to, to check some of that, you know, the self-righteousness, and feel what that feels like, the bristling of indignation, and I am right. And in a way, it throws up the whole of the other two levels in strong relief, doesn't it? You, know, you see the sense of all your moves, and all your sense of I am gets authenticated around somebody else being wrong. And although this may not occur on political levels, we can establish that on religious ideologies or moral stances or even different schools of Dharma practice, you know, who's right and who's wrong. And there's a certain strange, you know, glow about being right um, and wanting to put somebody else down feeling it's your duty to put somebody else down. So even if this is occurring subtly, or then when you start to do it to yourself, you get righteous about yourself. Snap out of it, pull yourself together, kind of thing. Um, or or self-punishment. So that can go from something quite, this behavioral stuff and goes to something you know, really quite external to something a little more intimate, to something really quite internal. Um, and we're trying to recognize, well, can we break this behavioral pattern? Can we acknowledge the energy there and feel how out of tune it is, how unwholesome it is? Not that, w- that anybody's right or wrong, or those are kind of could be secondary relative issues, but holding this just feels bad. This is an unwholesome tone this strident, righteous tone, this need to be right, is not a happy, stable, relaxed, settled <laughs> tone. You know, and then trying to find, doing that internally, you know, towards one's own, um, you know, what we experience as our own uh, moods and feelings and so forth. So some of this, if this is set right just by refraining from those actions, then another level we have to set it right through something a little more essential than behavioral. That is, not whether this is right or wrong behavior, what does it feel like now? Because we can recognize that we can justify all kinds of behavior, but what does justification feel like? What does having to prove something feel like? What does having to defend oneself feel like? What does having to be right feel like? You know? Ooh, it feels like suffering to me. You know, it feels like stress, strain, tension, holding, armor. You know, it feels like suffering to me. Yeah. Then, can it, can it be given up? This is where we switch from purely behavioral strategies, which are to do with just don't do this, don't do that, into something that's more essential, which is about att- attuning to what feels good. 
and we we tune to what feels good and and constellate or crystallize ourselves around that then these other things can fall away and that's if you like uh, an essential remedy that's a remedy in terms of essence so in other words we're not judging or deciding whether our anger or confusion is right or wrong. We're just finding a place where we can feel it and feel it in terms of a wholesome tone and adjust ourselves, attune ourselves to that wholesome tone. So in this is the <coughs> second level of conditions where we're experiencing moods and feelings and energies where we get the pain of the hindrances which is perhaps our one of our main um, main work in meditation is just this is just acknowledging the five hindrances how do we um, come out of that and you recognize that just purely on a behavioral level it's very difficult um, because, in a way, you keep fragmenting to do that. That is, if you didn't behave the way, you have to stand apart from that and stop doing that. So you, you, your mind sort of splits in two. There's the behavior, and then there's one who adjusts to the behavior. So it's kind of split. Um, so we find that, you know, if we're just operating in that way, I have to deal with my aversion. I have to deal with my greed. I have to deal with my restlessness or dullness. You get this kind of I am there, which starts to become um, righteous, impatient sometimes, tired sometimes of dealing with all this stuff, um, bored with it all, and sometimes deeply depressed by it all. Here it is again year after year, I'm stuck with all this. And we're, we're trying to remedy in a behavioral way what can't be remedied in a behavioral way. If you could say stop it and it would stop, do it. <laughs> please, please just do that. Say, stop being unhappy. Right. Oh, wonderful. But you realize you do that a few times and it doesn't happen. This means it's not a behavioural thing. It's an essential quality there. An essence can't can't be changed by by splitting it up into a me and an it. You have to, in a way, heal the whole, heal the wholeness, feel the wholeness, and heal the wholeness. So it's because uh, uh, many of what we begin to um, becomes clearer is that many of the hindrances actually arise from a fragmented state, from a broken state, of being unable to accommodate certain passions, certain energies, certain frustrations, of um, having kinds of shocks in the system, um, whereby we're continually agitated. So, you know, in, in healing something, it's not surgery that's needed at this level. It's things like massage um, <laughs> is what's needed. There's a wholeness that's needed to, to, to on, on the essential level. And there are ways and means of bringing this around. The first set of means is to do with calm, bringing, just introducing what's calm, what's happy, what's, um, con what's nourishing. In broad terms, a level of samatha. And to look at that topic, samatha means stabilizing, settling. And look at that very broadly. Um, it means bringing some good stuff. It could be practicing loving kindness, metta. May I be well, may I be well, may this be well. Um, acknowledging where there is well-being. Emphasizing that seeing it in oneself, seeing it in others, all the heart practices, um, devotional practices, so that we, we 
deliberately crystallize something that's got a feel-good quality to it and then dwell in that. Dwell in that. And extend it. So we might find something you know, where we do feel a sense of great warmth and uh, willingness to nourish or a feeling of inspiration and we pick that up and dwell in it and make it strong. Um, and this produces uh, something that's of an essential nature. That is, it, it reminds us of something that's quite essential and innate in ourselves. So even though it may be rather like homeopathy, you actually introduce a particular bit. It's there to get the system to say, oh yeah, I remember that, yeah, and then to do it. So we introduce a theme of kindness or introduce a theme of inspiration just to get the system to come out of its trance of difficulty or derangement or delusion. To say, oh yeah, yeah, you know, you know, though kindness may be induced, we can also recognize it's also innate. You know, that is, uh, you know, it's not a foreign concept, it's not a Buddhist idea. You know, it's not an ideology, it's something that, that all human beings can have and do have effortlessly. When we feel steady and connected and stable, kindness is a natural um, mood of the heart. The heart is able to breathe, to be free, to extend. And just as, as healing is a part of what a body does, you know, you, you wound, you cut a, a wound in it, it starts getting to work on healing it. You don't have to tell it to do it. Um, or o- only certain bodies do it. They all do it. It's their nature. Similarly, metta and karuna, mudita and upeka, these brahma-viharas, are natural qualities that, that the hearts produce. They're healing qualities. They're sense that come out and embrace everything. Touch everything. Integrate with everything. Feel comfortable with everything. Um, just as we breathe in and breathe out, we extend and share and mingle that well-being of heart, that nourishing quality of heart, that protective quality of heart, that sharing enjoyment quality with mudita, that very ground of okayness, which is equanimity. Um, these, these are natural things. They're innate. This is love essence, you might say. And we can generate that. We can trigger it, but also trigger it reminds us it's something that is a natural property. So when we come to that, then it's possible, you know, in terms of that, that we might say is a settling system. We might also use something like calming the mind through attending to a particular rhythmic process like breathing in and out, which has a calming effect because it's rhythmic. We settle, we calm, sense of steadiness and ease. And then that particular quality of calm is something that's generated and you can can spread it through the whole body and it spreads through the whole mind. So our whole being feels suffused with a quality of of, uh, ease. And this is what uh, Samatha is about, bringing up this. And then the idea is that, that as you develop that, then you can start to even have that present and abide in that and then touch or introduce some of the difficult things. Can I have kindness towards you know, this particular set of mental factors that come up? My sense of loneliness. Can I just be with that? Can I say, not, not get out of here, or shut up, or leave me alone, but may you too be well? <laughs> you know? Sort of embracing, embracing the woundedness with what's, what's calm and what's happy. So this is what I mean by coming to your good place, endowing and wishing you a good place, 
and then reaching into those wounded bits, the, the agitated mind, the restless mind, the doubting mind, not behavioral things which are snap out of it, get it together, shut up, um, uh, grow up with you, but just embracing it, holding it. So we develop a kind of holding field of good um, ground, I call it a ground of good essence. Another remedial means is the um, contemplating or acknowledging the impermanence uh, or the changing qualities of of what we experience. Again, this can be through noting the thoughts come and go, Thoughts come and go, the moods come and go, the sensations come and go. Uh, and if one can abide with that, you begin to recognize the, the, the subsiding, the arising and subsiding of these things, these phenomena. And then even little pauses between them, and even quite significant gaps in between the particular arising, subsiding of acknowledgeable phenomena. You get this kind of quality of relative emptiness. It's relative because it's always um, um, in relationship with phenomena. So this, this is a, also a place that has some ground in it. One can keep coming back to that, rather than... And though impermanence, this is the like discernment um, practice, discernment practices. When we are very much stuck in stuff, or really riding on all kinds of obsessions and thoughts, and we don't notice this, it seems pretty wall-to-wall, permanent. Perhaps just reminding ourselves, you know, this shouldn't be, I know this is why I should, I never like this. Whoa. What's the whole of that? You know, rather than getting too caught in the story, what's the whole, what's the simple whole of that? Could you put it in a word or two? Um, Angry, irritated, um, depressed, or whatever it is. Excited, needy, fearful, unstable. Okay, so you're just condensing it to that. And not trying to turn to short sell it, but just, just trying to say, I want to get this clear. There's too much going on, just to get it clear what that is. And then, well, what would it be like without this? Not to say this has got to go away, but just remembering. It isn't always, you know, it wasn't like this yesterday or three years ago or all the time. What's it like without this? What would it be like without this? Not, not that it should go away, but just a way, that moment, acknowledging that that's a relative thing we're in. It may seem very continuing and unbroken, but it's still a relative experience. It's not something that's absolutely innate, it's conditioned into the mind. So, you know, it's cold, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm fed up. What would you like if you weren't cold and tired and hungry? Oh, oh I'd be all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, what does that feel like, being all right? Well, yeah. And suddenly the kind of the drama of that particular experience has just been deflated a little bit. But when we're in something, it does seem so total and overwhelming and wrong and so I've got to fix it and change it. Just reminding ourselves, what's it like without this?
can contemplate this in many ways. <coughs> so, you know, we, when we go for our, our daily alms round in, in the monastery, it's generally, you know, there's various amounts of food set out on the table and it's offered and then people can go through and take particular food they need for the day and so I'm the if we do it in order of seniority so I'm the senior person so I always go through first and I go through and maybe there's 20 of us there's maybe 10 yogurts there so I look at that and think well there's 10 yogurts I'm the first person so I'll, I'll leave that you know I don't feel good about using a position to have more than anybody else so I feel it's my not just job, but my dana is to say, I'll give that, somebody else can have that, somebody else have that. Um, and it's really very easy when one contemplates it in that way. But also, you know, you maybe see something you really rather like. <laughs> <laughs> and you haven't had it for 15 years. <laughs> And it might never come again. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so then you think, well, who am I trying to prove? What am I trying to prove? This <laughs> you know, altruistic stuff. Um, so then your mind kind of gets caught on that and a little bit of charge around. Um, then I just kind of say, well, what would it be like without this? I mean, if this thing hadn't appeared, if they hadn't brought this into the monastery, I'd have just sailed through here, you know, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> and if I eat it, like in, you know, in about 14 seconds, it won't be here either. <laughs> so, you know, most of the time is about being without this thing, and I'm getting on okay, it doesn't enter my consciousness. So why don't I just go to that? You know? Oh, you know, then it, it's kind of neither here nor not here. It's only relatively here, if you see what I mean. You know, basically my here-ness is not dependent on <coughs> upon this particular object. So I acknowledge, you know, I can, I can be here, there can be a being here without this. But greed tends to draw everything up onto that particular object. You know, where at that particular moment, it feels like I cannot possibly be separated from this thing. <laughs> without an extreme loss of parts of me have been lost on that, you know. <coughs> so, or, or, you know, hatred. I've really got to get rid of this thing. Um, and then recognizing, well, what would it be like if it wasn't here? And you go to that, and then this object no longer is gripping. It's no longer saying, this is part of me. You know, this is stuck in me. This is what I am. You know, this is, this is no lo- it's just there. You leave it alone. You let it be what it is. And in a way, you, you, one arrives at a, a different at a ground, a different ground. So this is how we use relativity. So in Nietzsche means both relativity and impermanence. It means the not Nietzsche. Nietzsche means the absolute. So Anicca is the non-absolute. So we can see that things that we take as absolutes, you know, like my bit of pleasure, my whatever it is, uh, my problem, suddenly in, when it's stuck in us, when we get confused, it becomes an absolute thing. So we can either contemplate it, watch it change, or we can acknowledge this is only a relative thing. You know. Most of me is not about this at all. And so then the thing, um, you know, loses its hold. <coughs> now, the, using this um, Anicca reflection, impermanence, relativity reflection, is more than just an analytical tool. It does, and what's sometimes not really acknowledged in this particular teaching is although you know, there is a sense of things arising and subsiding, there's something else happening there that isn't always acknowledged. One is that there is, there is a ground that you land on, or a ground that things disappear into, or a ground 
of awareness that's there. So, you know, and you, you, you land or you descend or you rise or have you, you, you feel that, you discern that, because you discern that, you sense that, something and you rest into that and then the, the objects, the substance, the, the you know, things that you can let them roll by. But you've got something to land on. And if you like, um, there can be a, it can be a relative degree of calm can be there. Uh, a quality that seems like space or spaciousness can be there. A quality that seems like um, brightness or purity, a sense of something quite immaculate can be there. And these are subtle, a subtle sense. And this is the quality of, of, of this ground, you know, another aspect of what this ground is about. And because something in you, maybe you can't articulate it or even perceive it, something you sense is that, and you, you, you find your be you gravitate towards that, and because of that, you're able to rest there and let things pass. Now, if there were not that, it would be, how would, one, how would there be a letting go? You know, because if a Nietzsche itself were, were the only truth, then we're looking at something that's quite terrifying, actually. If, con- if there's only conditions, and conditions are impermanent, there's nothing else. It's like, you know, someone who's walking, a, 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 you know, across, walking across some structure that's got holes in it. And if you go through those holes, you're just into oblivion. There's nothing there. And rather like uh, a drowning person doesn't let go of, of, a, of the lump of wood they're holding onto unless they sense that something can carry them. Similarly, one doesn't let go of objects unless there's something to, to rest in. And this can be something we haven't really acknowledged. But um, the difference between a meditator and a psychotic is that a meditator acknowledges, in somewhere or another, their, their system acknowledges there's a ground of presence here. You know, and a psychotic doesn't realize that, so they're in a state of terror. Uh, so you know, a Nietzsche would be terrifying if there were no uh, ground to, for, to, for things to both subside into and for one's, one's awareness to attune to. This is very important. I think it's underestimated because the Nietzsche sounds so mechanical as if that's it. But you realize a Nietzsche is the sense of impermanence is experienced in awareness, in full awareness. One is focused, one is composed, there's that. And because of that, um, the, you know, that, that teaching works. At other times, one may easily acknowledge, you know, this thing is changing, stuff is changing, but you don't get that sense of relief because um, we, haven't, uh, we haven't found the ground. The mind is running, running circles, we can acknowledge that. You know, it's this, that, and this, that, and this, that. But you don't get the same sense of release and letting go unless the sense of changingness is experienced from a place of full awareness. Everybody knows things change, really. But not many people can realize that as, as a place of comfort. Um, and in fact, to put it another way, it's not many people, but there are own, some states we can do that with and some states we don't. For all of us, there may be states in which yeah, we can rest in awareness and let things pass, and some states in which, you know, one can one could acknowledge, yeah, this is, you know, stuff's coming and going, but I cannot rest in awareness on this. So even though it's impermanent, it's it's continuing. I mean, there's no relief from it. There's no release from it. <coughs> So, in both of these 
remedial qualities, one has to be a, a, acknowledge that it's not purely the nature of the the object, you know, as in calm. You know, so it's not that one is breathing or you know focus on a particular object or even a mind state that does it. And with the discernment practices, the insight practice, it's not purely that objects are impermanent um, that does it. It's the sense in which there is a ground in which the awareness of those experiences um, can be assimilated, can be integrated. So if we attach to calm, then we tend to go into uh, trance or, or um, states. Or we may find ourselves just losing attention and becoming sleepy. If we attach to the ideas of impermanence, we can find ourselves becoming um, distanced from experience. That is, uh, not really resonating with it, not really tuning into it, not really feeling it, or being present with it. There's a certain kind of, um, we can develop a certain dismissive attitude or dismissive stance towards the experiences that happen. Like, oh, it's just changing stuff, so what? You know. Um, and so, that instead of there being a, a, a proper probably established ground of being that's bright, luminous, uh, immaculate, um, suffusive. We develop views, um, ideas, opinions, standpoints um, that are not shining, luminous, immaculate, suffusive, but tend to become aspects of myself. And this means there's a certain fragmentation that occurs. Myself as, a, as an experience, as in the way I'm using it, is something that splits away from experience and has, thereby thinks it has the experience. Here am I having this. Uh, I can get this. I can do this. I can make this happen, so forth. So we descend from, an, from what was an essential integrity and an essential wholeness back into a behavioral dualism. And then, of course, we, the whole thing begins to break down because for a certain amount of time we may be able to do the calm, do the metta, get the anicca going, you know. But it's becoming much more um, dishonest in a way. It becomes a, a strategy rather than realization. Um, and one is no longer really meeting experience fully, uh, and embracing it fully. You know, so we may enter into a situation already a nietzsche it before it's happened. <laughs> you have been a nietzsche you know. <laughs> and what does it feel like when you've been a nietzsche you know, it's, it's again that sense of, of you know, you, you, the presence doesn't count anymore because you, you're just an impermanent phenomenon on my screen. Or, you know, you're something that gets in the way of my calm, my ability to calm down. Don't give me that, don't give me this, don't give me that, because I want to be, hold my calm, and this disturbs it, and this, this irritates it, and so forth. So we get to these low-grade replicas of what are really quite beautiful um, realizations. So there's a kind of debasing effect um, when these realizations become, uh, start to manifest in behavioral terms. Hmm? Another example, you know, we start to do the attitude maybe calm down. Yeah. So if one attaches to calm, then it's always calm down. And this is a bit like being treated like a three-year-old, isn't it? You are experiencing some, you know, grief or well, calm down and shut up. <laughs> it means that experience is not valid. 
it's not worth listening to. What we want to do is to make it into this experience. So certain levels of experience are never fully realized or, or their, their own nature is not realized. So we start to, in a way, divide our experience into Dhammic experience, which I can Nietzsche successfully, in which I can calm it, essentially, a non-Dhammic experience, which either doesn't exist, is not allowed, you know, is your problem. Right, that, you know, so you, you, and you, one begins to inhabit an increasingly um, separated and highly defended life. You know, it becomes my right to a Nietzsche thing. And you know, my right not to be disturbed, and so forth. This kind. Of and then, of course, with that, once it becomes my right, we can get righteous about it, <coughs> and develop views about it, and so on. So, with calm and insight, is to use these or to acknowledge these qualities themselves arise or manifest within a ground uh, of relative emptiness um, which is difficult to you know, it's, not a se- it's not a sensation but um, as we, if we've been practicing some of these embodiment practices it develops a particular sensitivity the whole effects, and this is what ground is about. It's about whole effects. It's about subtle effects that are yet whole. They're not locational. Um, they're not um, something that's happening in this particular place. They're, they're everything and everywhere. And um, they're not. We don't sense a, a sense of a separate self within that. You know, it both is part of the subjectivity. It's part of the object. So it becomes, if you like, a kind of a whole field effect which covers everything. So just no- noticing now, you know, one can notice the quality of attention that you're giving and the quality of attention that I'm giving. And I, I, you know, and I can sense all of that. And if your attention goes, then my attention will probably go too or it will be more of a struggle to say things. So where is that? In some way we're all contributing to that. It's a field effect that we can all tune into. I mean, if I wasn't attentive, just you know, babbling on, you'd probably lose yours or go somewhere else. But somehow you know, it, it, there's a field effect here. And when we, when we tune into that, we may feel present, bright, interested, involved, concerned, you know, it's there, isn't it? And this is not my doing, you know, I'm part of this, but this is not my doing. You know, it's something that's engendered through particular shared concerns, shared, shared uh, references, and sense of sharing space together. Now, ground, ground effects are rather like that. And you, you discern them in the same way. Like, what's it like here? What's the general tone here? And you can discern ground effects, just the intimacy of your, what seems to be your own realm of being. What's the whole sense of this? It's behind what I'm doing. What I'm doing may arise from that. When it arises from that, what I'm doing becomes effortless. It becomes just what manifests. When what I'm doing isn't connected to that, it's always a struggle. Come up with something. Do something. Um, and when you're meditating, or you're developing practice like that, when you feel that sense of, you know, I'm struggling here, what do I do here? You realize you're not actually connecting to the ground, and nothing's going to work. Mm. 
nothing's going to work. You, the only way you can operate on that level is behavioural. Fragmented. Don't do this, do do that. And it won't work in terms of your um, hindrances, difficulties in that level. You can maybe sort of block things for a while, uh, suppress things, or fight things off until you get tired of doing that. Oh God, how long have I been doing this for? And then, you know, distraction comes in, or despair comes in. So, essentially, when we come to this um, level of experience, the first important thing is to is to find the ground, either you know, if we calm or, or, or develop insight, develop loving kindness. It's not these things purely in and of themselves, but in relationship, in a fully holding relationship to experience. So we're not using impermanence to fend off experience or to belittle experience. We're not using calm to just suppress experience. We're using the quality of calm to hold and bond to and nurse and care for what's happening. To be with it. To feel with it. Not just to look at it, but to be with it. And in that, there's a, in that, there's a certain energetic um, shifting occurring, whereby those qualities of that blessedness begins to enter into the damage, the wound, the distractedness. Uh, not by changing it, not by asking it to change, but just by holding as it is. It's like um, you know things have things have got to um, things have got clogged, and so you just keep running the water through it, just meeting it with the water. Things have got unbalanced, so you just feel out the imbalance and let that sense of feeling out the imbalance gradually align you back into balance again. So with, with that ground, quality of ground, you don't exactly do anything. What happens is the very nature of contact, the very nature of attention, the very nature of intention, these um, what I call primary sankharas, their very nature does it for you. It's by contacting the, the, the grief or the distress or the agitation, with full awareness and with deliberate intention. From that, from that holistic place, the, the, the healing energy runs through it, and it begins to shift of its own accord. So the deliberate intention is just, our intention is to be present, if you like, to be fully present in a giving, empathizing way. You know, perhaps in you know another language we might use for this is just learning to to sit with to sit beside to befriend your own suffering. That's using a kind of sim, uh, more simple language. Deliberately sit sit with it, be with that, walk with it, hold it, take it by the hand, go for a walk with it. Um, and and it's like that particular quality of, of empathic awareness doesn't resist doesn't cling you know, doesn't judge has a, has a healing effect this is this um, within this ground you may as you, as you if you contemplate it you may acknowledge uh, things like the enlightenment factors or the indriyas can crystallize out of that. Um, they're they're all they're all bedded in that. In that, that. And there's a particular energy with that too. The energy is un unobstructed. That is normally when we're from a uh, trying to do it place, um, the very quality of that 
splitness, me trying to do it to that, um, breaks up the energy that we have. It breaks into two or three places. So part of you is, is stuck. Part of you doesn't want to be stuck, and part of you is trying to do something about it. So there's the three of you in there, at least. There's probably another bit saying, telling you how you're getting on with it. <laughs> so you get this kind of fragmentation of being into these various subject-object um, relational entities. Um, quality of, of wholeness, because it's non-separative, means all that energy can be come together. And that's what uh, provides, if you like, the raw power or raw energy that is, helps to sweep through that, that difficulty, to, to blow it out, to blow out the block. And it, in a way, it's effortless also. It's spontaneous um, energy. And maybe if you've ever just pra practiced with this, you know, when you've stopped, you have a feeling of, of even a, of dullness or of grief, something you feel really down in. And it's not just a particular topic, it's actually a, almost like something quite essential. It means your whole sense of being just sinks and shuts, shuts off, you know, just starts to collapse. And it's not particular idea, just something where you just go blank and you numb out. Or, alternative, you just get very hyper and you just seem very charged and intense and your eyes are bulging out and you, you know, walking around, everything's really overcharged and something you're saying, something you're desperately trying to stop this happening. Pull yourself out of it or ground yourself. Um, and, and so there's this tremendous uh, struggle takes place and it doesn't um, it's behavioural again, it doesn't bring around the, the results that we're looking for. If, there, if, we have, if we can generate enough of this understanding, this, this sensing, ability to sense the ground, you know, perhaps in our easier moments, we generate that and we begin to tune into that, then this is, this is what can actually hold those, those states and begin to unravel them. Extremely compounded states um, whereby uh, are things where you get actually completely locked. And this means that more than one thing is happening. There's a whole set of things stacked up together. It can be you know, a sense of primary fear, um, you know, a sense of lostness or absence you know so and then around that fear there's 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 um, say anger why has this happened to me you know and around that there's a sense of profound sadness this is a mistrustful world and these can be so impacted that they and and then on top of that can be, be not allowed to feel this it's too wild you know so so the whole thing gets sealed off. So what one experiences instead is a kind of frozenness or a resignation or, or, a, or a held sense. Um, uh, so this is when particularly certain obstructions become so impacted that you can't, you can't get in there. And using things like, you know, calm just bounces off the top. Um, you know, waving a little bit of an eater at it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's uh, like waving a dandelion at a rhino. And <laughs> <laughs> it's just, so what, you know? Because <laughs> you're, you're still left with this kind of gut level of uh, stuckness. And, and it gets very familiar. Here I am again, here it is again. So that, that keeps adding more layers to it the more times you return to that or your process returns to that. And it will keep returning to that because if you like, this, this, is, the, this is the very obstacle that's, that, you know, it, it's the prime obstacle for you. It's the one you've got to, it's got to kind of shift or, or it's standing in the way, it's holding you back. So it keeps nagging away. You keep coming back to it with a sense of increasing oh no, I was having a good time then, oh no, here it is again. And the feeling already 
I'm not going to be able to handle this. Or, you know, there may be a few attempts to handle it, you know, going to the breath, thinking of the Buddha or something like that, <laughs> and it just stays there. <laughs> um, so, you know, just being able to maybe hold all that, or, or be with that, or feel for that, and where and the sense of feeling a little bit at a time, you work from the edges of that. So perhaps the first sense that comes up with is, here it is again. Yeah. So that's perhaps the first level, which is the sense of you know, resignation, despair. Okay, so we t- can, can I, we just take that little bit, the outer skin of that, of how one feels so identified with that particular thing. No, no. What, you know, what, and hold the emotional content of that. Try to discern any bodily effect where you feel your body starting to crumple, you know, or, or go rigid. So you begin to, you know, take these states a little bit at a time and read them not from the head or not from the emotions that they, that they bring up which are in fact a whole part of the problem, the emotions they induce, but particular resourceful places, healthy places, like you know, so going to the sense of the whole body. And this feels, this stuckness feels here. You know. um, and it feels like, you know, delicate or don't touch, whatever. So we just stay with that and start to establish a quality of, of being able to be present with that. Um, and then things may start to unpeel. If we find the right distance and the right way to be with something, we unpeel and we find, you know, beneath that sense of resignation, there's a sense of big loss, you know, sadness or grief, or why don't I get enough, or something like that. So that maybe another layer comes up. And it's very much that same process, but always being able to, to return to a ground that expresses itself in a holistic way. And I- embodiment, in my, in my mind, in my experience, is a very good way of doing this. I'm not talking about fingers and thumbs, I'm talking about the whole sense of being embodied. What I notice in my in myself is with these very stuck things um, that the embodiment gets lost suddenly. You know, when it's out, and one is in a, a dark space or a whirling space or a flat space or a frozen space or a hot space, and the sense of the whole quality of being embodied in the present moment has gone. You know, and I may find myself going, oof, oof, you know, uh, and then. Opening the eyes, just it's not exactly ignoring it. It's just trying to navigate back to to ground territory, and the ground, you know, this relative what I call relative emptiness ground, is a place is something that manifests in bodily terms. It's obviously not a physical form, but it manifests in a bodily way, in a bodily sense. It's a sense of being grounded a sense of feel it, feeling whole, a sense of having space. And these are all very fundamental body senses. You know, I have enough space here, I have ground here, I feel whole here. Being able to get that. Uh, and then from that place, holding the, touching the bodily effects of some of these obscurations and difficulties. There may be an emotional tone that goes with that. I just call it settled, ease, um, fluent. Someone feels not emotionally bunged or fired up or charged up as emotionally fluent. Someone feels emotionally settled or at ease. And you know, it's that quality that arises when there is a genuine appreciation of impermanence, and it's a genuine one. It's a quality that arises when there is a, a, a sense of calm that is not a calm that's trying to avoid things, but a calm that comes from being rested within one's body, rested within one's breath. So these are the genuine qualities of calm and insight 
give rise to this particular emotional resonance, what I call emotional resonance, settled quality. And that's what we distill from these practices. So these very practices don't end up isolating themselves, but they, from them we distill, or what, from them what arises or what comes up are particular essential qualities to do with primary state of being. <coughs> and sometimes in, you know, in meditation practice one just rests in that. We don't do anything. Like just rest in feeling okay. Easy contact. You know, a certain fluttering. What should I do? What should I make? No. It's all right. I should be doing something. No. <laughs> you know, you can you can rest in that. Practices of calm and insight tend to be able to, to draw that quality into particular you know, material, in particular uh, difficulties that we have. That's, that's their, their skill. You can kind of steer towards things and you can actually um, you know, choose a little bit. So it has that advantage to it. But uh, also the disadvantage is one get, can get to too choice-laden, and then just then kind of exclusive about it. So being able to, you know, use these practices, which are conditioned, which are volitionally produced, and which are therefore subject to not being able to do them, and subject to time and place, and subject to um, unsatisfactoriness, but using them in order to get in touch and begin to fill in the qualities of primary ground, or relative emptiness, which is where all the enlightened faculties rest. <coughs>